Why should CBUS members have insurance through CBUS Super? Maybe it's because we understand the risks of working in our industries. Maybe it's because we offer cover that is tailored to protect building and construction workers, even those working at heights. Or maybe it's all of these reasons. So why not consider CBUS Super? CBUS for all of us. To consider if CBUS is right for you, visit cbussuper.com.au for a copy of the PDS. I had to go about it, write it out and find it myself. And there's some stories I can tell you. I had to fail, had to fall just for what I did well. And there's some stories I can tell This is the Final Word Cricket Podcast with me, Adam Collins, and him, Jeff Lemon. It's another weekend edition. We've been calling these the Encore Eps, but this isn't an Encore Ep, much like it was uh, perhaps three or four weeks ago, Jeff, when we had the Mark Nicholas interview released mm. on the weekend, that which came, of course, out of the Calling the Shots mini-series, which finished last week. We had Ian Smith on that series as well. We spoke to him for about 45 minutes to start it a couple of months ago, and it was a fantastic conversation that he had with Daniel and myself at about one o'clock London time, so uh, Daniel and I stayed up late, caught Ian first thing in the morning uh, mm. in New Zealand, and he was an absolute joy, so we thought we'd give that to you this weekend. In a way, it's an encore, because you've had bits of it in calling the shots, and now you get the whole True. thing, you know, encore, you you come back and expand upon your previous points, and, and that's what Ian Smith will get to do, and you'll get to learn more about him and his life than the barest of margins, the barest of all possible margins. <laughs> Yeah, and I think what one of the most uh, enjoyable parts of the conversation was going under the hood a bit as to how he prepares for a big game like that. Of course, it wasn't the first big moment he had in the tournament. The semi-final mm. with Martin Guptill um, was, I mean, if, if if he had not been calling the final, let's say, for example, the, the final went a different way uh, and it wasn't a tie and New Zealand were nowhere near it and England won comfortably, that people would still talk about the semi-final uh, mm. call of Ian Smith, which went bananas at the time. So, uh, But yeah, he, he went and explained all that to us and his long career in broadcasting. You kind of forget that he's been doing this since 1993. So he's called with some real icons and he was mentored by Richie Benno. And yeah, it's, it's a... A lovely, uh, a lovely uh, sort of journey through his career behind the microphone, and a little bit about his playing career as well. Which again, it's easy to forget that he was an international uh, for New Zealand before he took up commentary. So that's all coming up in a bit, uh, Jeff. Since we talked earlier this week, of course, there's a test match going on at Southampton at the moment. Lots of stuff to talk about there. We'll come to that in our uh, weekly show early next week. But um, from your perspective, you're now formally in lockdown for the second time, and um, since going into lockdown and the numbers coming through each day from the Victorian government about um, new coronavirus infections. We've had a number of people get in touch with with us independently, uh, linking it back to Nerd Pledge. Yeah, I suppose people are looking for anything to cheer themselves up at the prospect of going back into second lockdown and, you know, the numbers just being really deflating in Victoria, 288 new cases today when you know we were down at zero not long ago so it, it's 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 pretty depressing um, it's pretty deflating for everybody um so i i can understand the urge to try to find a nicer way to think about it so we've had quite a few listeners and nick g on twitter particularly talking about um how to link those to cricket numbers so 288 he said was the the number of international matches david boone had played and that was a nicer way to think about it than 288 new infections um in our home state yeah andrew 54 who's a patron of ours and a 
great mate of mine. He played a, we played in an indoor soccer premiership together a few years ago, uh, for example. Uh, rabid Footscray supporter, one of the best on Twitter. Um, he had the same idea, saying that he, he couldn't help but link the two together. So 288, he said, was the score in Australia's uh, VB Series game in 2003-2004. So the opening game of that series, uh, he says here, before Ian the Freak Harvey ran out Sir Afghan Ghouli and sparked an Indian collapse when they were out for 270. He said he'd be back for <laughs> more of this uh, at the same time tomorrow. Let's hope he is back for more of this at the same time tomorrow because if the numbers remain sort of in cricket terms, then I suppose, well, hopefully lower cricket terms in 288. Yeah. But I mean, what, what we don't want to see is the infections getting to the point where they were in the UK a couple of months ago when they were well, they were well beyond anything cricket related. So No, we, um, we, want, we want Chris Martin's batting average sort of numbers, yes. not, not Bill Ponsford first-class score numbers or, you know, the no. innings numbers that he got them in. We had here for the for 288 also, Jeff, you popped up the test bowling average, Mackay and Teeny, and the one-day international bowling average of AB de Villiers. I remember that uh, that wonderful time in the 2015 World Cup when AB mm. was... It was all the rage for a while, wasn't it? AB and Coley were both bowling quite a bit of... I wouldn't even call it medium pace, uh, and it's not no. Chris, Chris Harris-esque because at least Harris, with his slow mediums, was putting plenty of work on the ball. They were just basically trying to uh, dupe batsmen out. Yeah, De Villiers was, was just bowling nudes. I think it was the only thing you could call them because they weren't even really seam up. They were just sort of nude deliveries that came down with nothing on them whatsoever. And I think yeah. he was just hoping to get players out by virtue of reputation. He, he took seven wickets in total in his ODI career, but he was trying to be the fifth bowler for quite a while when they were in between having guys like uh, Farhan Bahadine and others filling in that gap, you know, guys who could bat but could could maybe just burgle ten overs, but it didn't generally work out that well. Yeah, it's often a, a quite successful strategy. That's partly why Sachin Tendulkar used to bowl a lot of overs in one-day internationals. People People didn't want to get out to the mm. little master. So. But he was a good bowler. Like He was actually... A, he had his moments. Know, he was yes, a proper he did, bowler. Yeah. He could bowl leg breaks and off breaks. He could usually land them. You know, He took test wickets. He was, I think, better than your average part-timer. Yeah, when he first burst onto the scene as a teenager, he was quite a useful medium pacer as well. I remember that first tour to Australia in 91-92. He was often used as a change bowler in... In one day cricket, and also a reply here from William Kay, who said that when Wally Hammond scored his three three six not out, which we've talked about recently on Nerd Pleasure, it took him two hundred and eighty eight minutes, which I think is the best at a lot. That's um, very so fast. Thank you to Andrew, Nick, uh, and Simo <laughs> was the man who gave Nick the idea, uh, and of course to William um, Jeff. We have a, a series of new Nerd Pledge numbers, and then we're revisiting some absolute corkers. Yeah, and I like that we've we've started before actually having Nerd Pledge. We've started with a sort of pre Nerd Pledge Nerd Pledge. So if you're listening to this. Show for the first time, you'll be very confused. Uh, we, we will have the interview with Ian Smith in a bit, but we like to have a little waltz through the, the history of cricket before we do that. And we do that via a game called Nerd Pledge. It's a game we play with people on our patron page. They support the show by sending us a number of dollars and cents, and that number relates to cricket in some way. And some of them give us a hint and some of them don't, but we have to work out what the number means. The first off our list today, a number close to both of our hearts, Adam, for mm. a couple of different reasons. It comes in from Liz Brandt and Jack Register. It's a, a double number. We've got a couple of those today. And that number was $4.33. Now, when you look into the clouds and you see the number 433 form and you try to link it to cricket, what does 433 sing to you in your sleep, Adam? 
Maxwell. Glenn <laughs> Maxwell. Isn't that the Mrs. Krabappel, uh, 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 Woodrow Wilson episode of yes. The Simpsons? I think. Uh, Strap on your skates, Woodrow. You're going in. <laughs> Uh, I, I can't remember the, the, the line that's written in the letter, but I know it ends with Woodrow, in this case, um, uh, Maxwell. Uh, he was the 433rd Australian man to play test cricket when he debuted in, oh, was it Mahali, Jeff? No, it wasn't Mahali. 2013. It was that, wasn't it? It, it, so it was. was the, it was the test before Mahali, so it couldn't have been Delhi. Mm. No, Mahali was the here. third because... Um, Mahali was the third, but I think Maxwell debuted in the second, didn't he? Oh, he did. Nathan Lyon. He did in... The one that so they bring Lyon back oh. from the third, and then for the third rather, and then Chennai yeah. was the fourth. Delhi was the first because MS made the double hundred. Oh right, I thought Delhi was the. Oh sorry, uh, no, Delhi Chennai, was, the Chennai fourth. was the first. Delhi, Chennai Delhi, was the first. Delhi, Delhi, Delhi was the fourth. Chennai was the first. Mahali was the third. What was the second? Was it Vizak? No, they hadn't. Um, that ground hadn't debuted then. It was one of was it Bangalore? It was one of the more conventional grounds. Mm. I can't believe we it, can't remember it, this. In any case, that's where Glenn Maxwell debuted for Australia, and I can't believe it either. And uh, With Xavier uh, Doherty, who wasn't debuting, but that was when they dropped line and brought in Maxwell and Doherty, wasn't it? That's right. They sort of thought that uh, well, it was the... Well, he took four for He bowled all right. He, he did. He was more effective than Doherty was, which I think, in the mm. end, Doherty did get another game on, on that tour, but he didn't play for Australia again in, uh, in, in Test cricket. But, yes, it was in that little weird period where they couldn't quite work out where... Whether Lyon was was going to add to that list of spinners that was going to hit the scrapyard post Warn, or whether he was mm. for keeps, and by the end of 2013 they'd resolved that he took his 100th Test wicket uh, on the final Test playing day of uh, 2013 against England, and was kind of settled by then. But yeah, earlier in the year he was dropped, as you say, for Maxwell and Doherty, and then of course uh, before the first Ashes Test of 2013 at Nottingham, uh, Ashton Agar got in ahead of him. But yes, Hyderabad, that gave Maxwell his chance. Hydrobat, there you go. That's exactly yes. right. More like Hydra Good, because that's where Glenn Maxwell <laughs> debuted. So he was cap number 433, but because we've got a double, I wouldn't have left this out anyway. But another 433 that's also very dear to my heart, the wonderful, the lovely left-arm spinner from Sri Lanka, Arangana Herath, who played, I think, about three test matches while Murali was still bowling, had to wait until he was about 31 to actually get a run at the test side, and then had one of the great careers, 433 wickets in his career, absolutely astounding what he was able to do at an age when most players are winding down. He was just winding up, and he kept going up until about the age of 40, and and just took so many bags and bags and bags of wickets, especially in Sri Lanka, but Overseas as well was integral to their win in Durban against South Africa, and um, was was such fun to watch with the bat and and in the field as well. A couple of wonderful outfield catches that he took in Australia that people rem- remember from time to time, and um, just a, a lovely person and, and a wonderful player to watch. Jeff, if you like old spinners, you're going to really enjoy an answer I have for you later on. Okay. <laughs> One more. For I do like old though. spinners. We, we talked about 37, 38 uh, recently. Uh, that uh, remarkable test at Melbourne where Bradman as captain uh, flipped the batting order and there were a couple of bizarre declarations to set mm. up the game after a rest day. It was a, perhaps the most ridiculous test match as far as the scorecard's concerned ever played and Bradman ended up in the third innings of the match making 270. Well, he backed it up in the next test match by making 212 after Australia carried a, a fairly hefty deficit in Adelaide into the third innings of the match and then Bradman 
rattles off a, a second double ton in, in, in two test matches, uh, sets England 392, which they don't get anywhere close to. So that mm. leveled that series at two apiece. So Australia going to Melbourne, 2-0 down. They somehow win at Melbourne. They win at Adelaide. And then, of course, they win the decider as well to, 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 to retain. Yeah, it would have been retain the Ashes uh, 3-2. And it was the only time that the decide's done that from 2-0 down. And so he made his 212 out of a total score of 433. Oh, sorry. I missed the 433. Yes. <laughs> I was wondering about yes. that. Yeah, yeah. No, there is a relevance there. there there's yep. rele- yeah, it, it, he made 212 out of 433. Correct, correct. Okay, so there's a, there's a 433 link. So Glenn Maxwell, Rangan Herath, Don Bradman, plenty to choose from. Liz and Jack, uh, let us know. Drop us a message on Patreon and let us know how we've done, if you like. Uh, another double coming in next Paul Murphy and Sam King teaming up with the number two dollars and six cents two zero six. And uh, don't be confused that this is being an, an AFL podcast. If I say it involves Collingwood at playing at the Adelaide Oval, um, <laughs> but it does. Uh, fabulous innings there in oh six oh seven, uh, which ended up being a crazy Test match as well, Jeff. So he's the obvious one. That's what I went to when I saw two oh six. I had the good fortune of being there for that Test match. I wasn't going to be there because. Uh, the weekend before uh, mm-hmm. was the state election day, and at about two o'clock in the morning, when setting up a polling booth, I smashed a stake through my hand, which required surgery in order to pull Jesus. all the wood out of my hand. Um, but um, but I but I <laughs> somehow made it to that? Adelaide Oval because I knew it was important that I was there. Like, like <laughs> you mean like putting up a picket, like putting a sign in someone's yeah, yard? Yeah, I was putting a garden sign up, and then the wood split, and I hammered it straight through my, I guess oh. it's the top knuckle of my left hand, my left index finger, and it went all the yeah. way through to about my wrist. I yanked it out instinctively. Um, so it being election oh, day, and God. I was the campaign manager for the candidate in question. I love oh. you, Judith, if you are listening. Uh, we, um, we, I just plowed through, as you do. I mean, it's, it's like, you know, you've got no option to... Uh, to to, uh, to cry off at that to, to go to so, hospital and, and yeah, get the a, giant well, hole in, in, in your the body. End, I got forced up. to go to hospital at about five o'clock in the afternoon to get it looked at, and uh, and Jesus. they explained that it would require some action the following day. So I just ran. I remember um, fondly just dealing with it in the usual way and um, medicating by having twenty beers after we won the election that night, and oh, going out God. to ding dong till stupid o'clock. And the next morning, um, the hand was a was a sorry mess, but I did make it to Adelaide. That's the key information, and I was there to watch um, Paul Collingwood make his double turn. That is a. Uh, that's a, a truly horrendous story. Um, I, I can't believe you had to go through a, a horrific, painful trial like that. And also you hammered a stake through your hand. Um, <laughs> what, watching Paul Collingwood make a double hundred would not necessarily be my idea of fun. Um, nonetheless, I found with the 206s, there's there's a situation of dueling 206s, like dueling banjos, but, you know, ding, 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 but with 206. Now, we talked last week i think about new zealand touring england in the 1950s and getting smashed they had a, a better contest in 1949 when they toured and there's a situation where martin donnelly makes 206 at laws and then len hutton replies with 206 at the oval uh, <laughs> martin martin donnelly is the player we spoke about in a Statman segment about players whose only century was a double hundred because ah. he made that 206 only played seven tests and then retired to further his business career and, and didn't carry on playing for New Zealand. So that's the double 206s. That's where I'm going with it. But you can let us know, Paul Murphy and Sam King. Uh, next on our list, Harry Howard, all on his own with $2.16. And we know when we see 216 what 216 is, Adam, don't we? Well, this is it. Well, there's been a number of times 216 has come up. And every time, Jeff, you've gone... 
you've gone full throttle on one yep. particular player, and I don't think it's ever been him. So, I mean, the, 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 the paddock is yours. Have a gallop. I am, I'm not backing down, and I'm not accepting any other nominations for this. Um, I, a couple of kind people have amended their numbers after I almost cried on the show one week when it wasn't the 216 I was thinking of and, and made them 216. But I'm going again. I'm, I'm quintupling down or whatever it is. Clary Grimmett. 216 test wickets. You said that I like old spinners. He was the oldest spinner of them all. I think he was 46 or 47 when he got punted from the Australian team by Bradman. Uh, He played in the 1920s and 30s. Leg spinner, one of the most prolific wicket takers. 216 wickets in 37 test matches. So he took nearly six wickets a test, which is Mm. very, very few players have got anywhere near. 21 five-wicket hauls in 37 tests. Absolutely ridiculous. Uh, Mm. He he will ever forever be the tiny, balding, um, strange-actioned catapult. Um, leg spinner in my heart, Clarence Grimmett, uh, aka Grum, who who took that two sixteen, and I'm sure that's it, Harry Howard, because what else would a gentleman of taste put forward for two sixteen? Uh, Jeff, I just love that Harry Howard's two sixteen involves a short, old leg spinner, because yep. Adam Jones with three hundred four, which is the mm-hmm. next number, also includes someone who could vie with him for the most prolific old leg spinner so adam's clue was that it's really old spinner day today isn't it it is old spinner day i said herath now grimmett and and this one probably takes the cake certainly in first class cricket so adam jones 304 thank you adam said that uh, his number related to kent now um so it's obviously not bradman at leeds his 304 um in 1934 uh it is a man though who played just before that era as far as test cricket's concerned he played test cricket uh, from 1924 to 1929, 66 wickets in 12 tests at 26, but I'm not interested in that. Um, mm-hmm. Alfred Titch Freeman was a five foot two. So that's about, that's shorter than Michael J. Fox. That's shorter than Prince. And here that's, he was. That's barely taller than Olympic gymnast Simone Biles. Exactly. Basically the same size as Simone Biles, bowling his leg breaks. And due to the war, uh, he obviously missed a significant slab of his career earlier on, uh, but he made up for it. So uh, Abhishek Mukherjee on the wonderful Cricket Country website, where you often can find some great deep dives, has gone into great detail here. So Titch Friedman uh, was the... Is, sorry, say it again. Titch Friedman, 304. He's the only player ever to take 300 first-class wickets in a season, taking 304 in 1928. He's also second on that list with 298 in 1933, so five years later. 276 he took in 1931, which is fifth on the list. And he's also got the sixth spot as well with 275 in 1930. Absolutely remarkable. But in that run, I mean, it's just the age that he did all of that beyond the age of 40. So he goes on this crazy run between 1928 and 1935. Every season for Kent, he takes more than 200 wickets, eight consecutive years and he took 180 and 181 in the two years preceding that so in that window he took uh, 2090 wickets in that run (laughs) at an average of 17.9 and they were all in seasons after the age of 40 how many games did they play like how can you take 300 wickets in a season how many matches are you rolling out for I mean, I mean, he took he took more than half of Kent's wickets through this time, 56% to be precise. Right. And you go through it, it gets better and better. So he took, in his career, 386 five-wicket hauls. 
What? In 1,500 in, in uh, matches. So he picked up a five-wicket bag, one in every 1.5 matches in his first-class career. Now, the benchmark for Fifers is usually Wilfred Rhodes, who took 287 of them. But he took a Fifer in every 3.8 matches. So you see, Titch Freeman was so prolific when it came to taking bulk wickets. He's also taken the most tenfers in first-class history. He took 10 wickets in a match so over two innings 140 times. So one in every 4.3 first-class matches, he banked a tenfer, which is just, I mean, I don't even know what it... I, I, now I know that much, I feel like I've got to learn a lot more about Titch. All I knew about Titch Friedman before this was a great story that Kerry O'Keefe told on the radio in about 2002, I reckon it was, about how he was known in, in first-class circles of taking bulk wickets but going for well over 200 runs. He'd bowl all day. He'd take six for 240 or something like that. But I didn't realize right. that, um, that that he was, I mean, as I say, he was taking more than half the wickets uh, more than half the time. Um, it's just crazy. So as far as a Kent player and the number 304, it has to be Titch. I mean, I'm not going to argue with, with any of that. I, I did just pop in the calculator 386 times five. That's 1,930 wickets minimum that he got from five wicket halls. Obviously, it would be higher than that because there'd be sixes and sevens and eights in there. But, um, yeah, absolutely astonishing. So I, I'll take that, Adam Jones. If that's not your 304, well, I don't know what to do with it because we, we're not going to spend any more time on the show on it. <laughs> right. Our last new number on the show today comes from Rob. And I, I had a little thought process here. The number is $5.44. So I was thinking $5.44. Now, we mentioned Rob on the show some months ago, and I didn't have his last name. And so I decided that his last name was uh, from the rich and give to the poor. (laughs) Rob dropped us a message and said, actually, we were pretty close because his last name was Richardson. So he was Rob Rich, um, (laughs) which, which kind of worked. And he's an England supporter. And so I figured that if he's the Rob from the rich and give to the poor guy, his number has to have a link to Nottingham, which, of course, is the home of Robin Hood. And if you go Very there good. to this day, you could your public transport card is still called a Robin Hood card for some reason because mm. we all know he was about safety and transportation when he was robbing stagecoaches that were going through Sherwood Forest. So I, I've decided that Rob's number is related to Nottingham, and it's 544. Now, interestingly, at Trent Bridge in Nottingham, there's a double. This is where Alex Tudor took... Five for 44 against Australia in 2001, and Simon Jones took five for 44 in 2005 at the same ground. So, back to back Ashes series with an England link to the home of Robin Hood, and I'm not going to do any better than that today. Absolutely sensational. Of course, that's Simon Jones's final test match. He gets injured in the second innings, I think, from memory, and, and doesn't play again. But what a mighty effort that was from him in that series. And then the Alex Tudor five for 44, that is one of his last big performances for England. He There was a lovely interview with, with Tudes on, uh, on Tailenders last week. He's a great bloke, Alex. I've had a couple of games where I've been able to do some commentary with him, and he's just a wonderful fella. Uh, and um, he was talking about his test unbeaten 99. So in 1999, he was batting with Graham Thorpe, and they were chasing about 230-odd against New Zealand, and, uh, and Tudor came in as night watchman. And then Graham Thorpe came in and unfortunately scored a boundary, which denied Tudor the chance to move to triple figures. And of course, it never happened for him, and his career ended courtesy of a Brett Lee bouncer in um, 2002 at Perth. But um, it was a nice little... Uh, episode of Tailenders, I can recommend it because I had Mike Atherton on there as well talking about his um, Test 99 when he was run out 
at Lords in 1993, and uh, and uh, and they were talking about the commentary of that. And we had that recently on Calling the Shots. Of course, it was one of Brian Johnston's last sort of famous moments behind the mic on TMS before he passed away in early 1994. So um, yes, I'm glad that we're getting Alex Tudor into this uh, episode because he's a ripping fella, and I was that was a great interview with him on Taylor's the other week. Those are all of our new Nerd Pledge numbers for the day. If you want to send us a Nerd Pledge number for us to do on the show, you just go to patreon.com slash the final word, uh, sign up. You can set an amount there, which will be the number that we'll record on the list. And in doing so, you can help us keep the show going. We do then like to revisit the ones that we've guessed at and may not have got right when people have sent us a message during the week to give us another hint or, or urge us on. Elliot Diamond was one we looked at last week with $2.50. Oh, yeah. We were talking about Justin Langer's 250 and players with 250 games, things like that. Uh, you've been looking into this one, Adam? This was my... I find of the week. So I punted it off to Daniel Norcross. I uh, thought, you know, an England reference, 250, you know, give him something to do while he's watching a test match sitting on his sofa there and tooting. And 20 minutes later, he came up with the goods. Uh, Dennis Compton hit twin hundreds against Australia in Adelaide in 1947, and it was England's 250th test match. But I took it one step further. In that 250th test match where Compton scored twin tons, he made exactly 250 runs in the match, 147 in the first dig and an unbeaten 103 in the second. Delicious. A round of applause for that one. I've been doing a similar amount of digging to try to work out Jordan Russo's number. So he managed to send through somehow a number of 0.68, and I was trying to link that to Charles Bannerman with 0.67 being the percentage of runs he got in an innings. Jordan said that uh, that that kind of rounding up rather than down would have made his primary school teacher flip out. Now, Jordan claims to have included a clue in his original post, which was that he let us know that he lived in the St. George area, but he's saying that that's a somewhat cryptic clue. And I've been trying to to work this out. There are a few different things going on here. So initially, I was thinking, okay, St. George... 68 what are we looking at here now and what has to do with something that we talk about a lot on the final word one thing we talk about a lot on this show is Shane Watson Shane Watson played grade cricket and probably still does for Sutherland who have a, a local rivalry with St George and and Watson Adam holds the record for the highest score by a Sutherland batsman against St George he made 184 against them uh out of a partnership of 300 with the excellently named Sutherland player Jared Biviano, they put on 300 together, and and that was that's the highest partnership in Watto's great cricket career. The tenth highest partnership in his great cricket career is also with Jared Biviano, and that is 68. So that's incredibly tenuous, but it's 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 something. It's an option. I was like, okay, maybe that's it. The other note in Jordan's email. Where he ends his email, he says, get the air guard. And I'm like, what What the fuck? What does that have to do with St. George? Because, so, air guard, I'm thinking Max Walker. And then I looked up Max Walker, and Max Walker died at the age of 68. So, I'm like, there's a 68. But Max Walker has nothing to do with St. George. Um, he was from Tasmania. So, there's no link there. Then I was looking at other people who died at the age of 68. There is the St. George leg spinner, Frank Ward. Now, Frank Ward is the guy who replaced Clary Grimmett in the Australian Test Team for the 1936-7 Ashes, promoted ahead of Grimmett by another St George player, Donald Bradman. Uh, and then Frank Ward went on to England 
with another uh, St. George player, Bill O'Reilly, and didn't manage to get more than one test match in England because O'Reilly was there. His one test match didn't go very well. He took none for 142 and and didn't play again after that. But Bill O'Reilly didn't really want Frank Ward to be there. He wanted Clary Grimmett to be there because he loved Clary Grimmett. And the obituary for Clary Grimmett in Wisden was written by Bill O'Reilly, where he really mourns, mm. uh, as much as mourning the passing of his friend, he also mourns the end of their partnership and, and what they were able to do bowling together and, and the fact that that was cut short. So all of that links back to the leg spinner Frank Ward, who died at the age of 68. There's a 68 uh, with many St George players involved. And the last thing I can come up with is that uh, St George player Josh Hazelwood on debut took five for 68. That's a tour de force, Jeff. Um, I don't even know where to start in response to that. All I want to do, first of all, is tidy up something I said earlier. I described incorrectly the the, uh, the Adelaide test of uh, 1937 as being part of the 37-38 Ashes. Of course, it was part of the 36-37 Ashes. Oh, I, oh. I, I botched that. But um, Furious. Look, at the. I think that's like a maths exam where you've got the answer right, but you've got your workings wrong. Maybe it's the reverse of that. Like you've you've got these wonderful answers, any of them that mm. could be applicable. But the working's um, great. The answer's definitely not right. But anyway, yeah, Jordan, I, I've see. given it a red. Jordan Musso, <laughs> that's a gem. Uh, we've also got a, a callback here from well, not a callback as much as a, a bit of correspondence. A couple of bits of correspondence. Uh, one from Ben Woolger on Chris Weinberg's two seventies. This was the West Wing question. This is how does two seventy relate? to the West Wing. And Ben got mightily resourceful and nearly got there. So he said that um, in What Kind of Day Has It Been? So an episode from season one, President Bartlett tells Charlie he's been watching a women's softball game because the alternative is a cricket match between Scotland and Bermuda. Now, he goes on to add that in 2007, Bermuda um, briefly played one day internationals and they did play Scotland in a game where the target was 268. So one run off... 270, which would have been quite elegant considering that game was played eight years after the episode was written. What I do know is that Christopher has been in touch with us last week as well to clarify that Jeff was actually right with the 270 in that uh, 270 relates to the magic number for the Electoral College, uh, which we will fret about until November 30, says, along with Bradman's epic knock. So I'm glad we got there in the end, but that was a fantastic effort from Ben uh, getting in the weeds with us. And uh, further into the weeds, a little correspondence about 299 not out. We were talking about Bradman's, one of those. Pat Rogers has also dug up one made by the Indian first-class batsman Shantanu Sugweka, who in a Ranji Trophy match in the late 80s for Maharashtra, he put on 102 with the number 11, Anil Welkehar, and uh, had got to that 299 mark asked his lower-order batting partner if he was comfortable facing the new ball which had just been taken. The number 11 said that he was and was bowled the first ball that he faced with it, turned around, saw the stumps and started crying and continued to cry in the dressing room, having left his partner short. And I wonder if Pud Thurlow cried uh, when he left (laughs) Radman one short or if he thought that it was the batsman's fault. But, uh, yeah, that was the the highest score for Shantanu Sugweka in a career of 85 games where he averaged 63 and Pat Rogers wanted to know why he never played a test, so you've been in touch with Husha Bogle to find that out. <laughs> it's not only the 299, he had a, a string of high scores in, in, that, in, that, uh, in that little window, and Harsha simply said that he played in an era when there was a lot of competition for places. Also, they didn't have A-tours in that day, nor did they have the IPL. So 
if you were in the team, it was probably like the Australian team back then. It was harder to get out mm. of it than it was to get into it, which is why he never was able to make it at the next level. Jeff, that brings to a close uh, another fun, detailed and lengthy edition of Nerd Pledge. <laughs> We've, uh, we have been getting deeper and deeper into the undergrowth in some of these segments, but look, that's what they—that's what it calls for some of the time, and it's the weekend edition where we, we, we don't have to do anything else, so that's what we're going to do. Let's have a quick breather on the final word, and after that, it'll be Daniel Norcross and myself talking with the great Ian Jeff, before we go to Ian Smith, a word for our mates at Lords Taverners. We, we talked about them on the weekly show the other day and their Isolate program, uh, which is where they're encouraging uh, support to the tune of eight pounds and nom- nominating eight friends to do the same to raise money for the crucial programs they run for 12,000 at-risk and vulnerable uh, people around the country. And of course, that's heightened during the COVID crisis. Uh, I mean, this is the UK's leading youth cricket and disability sports charity. It's been going since 1950 and it's designed to break down barriers uh, for disadvantaged and disabled people to help them fulfil their potential and build life skills. It uses cricket as the vehicle for that. A number of programs. Runs for Change has linked up with the start of the season where there are are at least some runs being scored and because it's England there won't necessarily be too many so you don't need to get too worried but uh, they've got a couple of the England test players have signed on as ambassadors for the charity in Zach Crawley and, and Joe Denley and one of the things that you can do is, is go to the Lord's Taverners platform and, and sponsor them per run during the series so you can cap that amount or make it for as little as you like but just have a, a little investment in how those players might do over the course of the summer and uh, to help support the Runs for Change program. Yeah, so org is the website. We'll put the Runs for Change link. It's a particularly tough time for people who are isolated. The research that they do shows that people living with disabilities struggle with isolation and, and loneliness much more than people who are not living with disabilities and that's only being exacerbated during the lockdowns and the usual opportunities have been massively curtailed so if you can support the Lord's Taverners work they'd be very glad to have it and and so would we if if we can help send you their way. They do so much good work in the community not only with disability but also tackling issues such as knife crime, unemployment, radicalization so their programs are geared towards helping and doing good things for people in our cricketing community and that's why we're so proud to have them with us as a partner on the final word so there's the isolate program which we talked about the other day where you can contribute eight pounds to their campaigns in order to support them at a particularly challenging time so they can keep rolling out their programs through the rest of this summer and then the runs for change campaign where zach crawley and joe denley are their ambassadors and you can jump on there and back them in. So every time they make a run, you'll be making a contribution to the Lord's Taverners. Good people doing good things. Hi, I'm Ebony Rainford-Brent and you're listening to The Final Word with Adam Collins and Jeffrey. Ian, to begin, uh, this episode is going to be about calling the big moments, capturing the big moments and uh, how you've done that, had the privilege of doing that for, for many years from behind the microphone. But in preparing for this chat, I was, I was wondering whether you ever go back and watch footage of your own big moments on the field from your playing career with New Zealand and uh, revisit how they were captured by the commentators of the day. 
Can I be honest with you and, and say I'm not big on that, and I, I never really have been. I'm not quite sure whether I'm I'm sort of embarrassed to go back there, or I, I've never been one to sort of reflect in personal glory. And I I, I know a lot of people wouldn't mm. say it openly, and they probably do, but I just simply don't. I mean, I I've always been, um, particularly as a as a commentator, interested in today's game or tomorrow's game. They're, they're the things that sort of I focus on more than perhaps what happened yesterday. So I don't reflect a lot. Uh, I will say that that this in this uh, and in this lockdown period uh, that we're going through because of this virus at the moment, they're playing a lot of old footage of old games going back in time, uh, which I commentated on. Um, and so I'm, I'm actually quite enjoying them uh, and, and hearing the commentary styles and that that were like 20 years ago. So I, I, that has been a bit of an education for me. But by and large, generally, I, I'm on the tomorrow and the next day, and I, I haven't dwelt too much on the past. And in particular, my own career, I only I got 200, so I'd get sick of watching them pretty bloody quickly. With the, uh, I guess, the, the craft of commentary, and I, I mean, you know, the love of it, and I guess we all share that. Um, when you were growing up as a kid, or even indeed when, when you were playing, were there... Um, what stands out to you in the mind's eye if you think back a long way back stuff you listened to before you were working in it uh, are there like iconic passages or moments that really stand out whether it's cricket or rugby or anything else styles of commentary uh, listen I, I was brought up in a, a sporting family so we, we were interested in sport around the world my memory goes back to listening to the All Blacks play against the Springboks in the middle of the night in South Africa and listening to a couple of New Zealand commentators. Bob Irvine was one, John Howson was another, who travelled over and we could basically hear that come back in the middle of the night. So I remember sitting up, well, my dad getting me up at what, what, two in the morning. That's how keen I was at, like, at the age of 10 or 11. In terms of cricket, I go back to John Arlott. Um, I go back to, to Brian Johnson and those guys and listening to New Zealand play in England on shortwave radio and my most dominant memory is listening to Australian cricket with McGilvray, Alan McGilvray and Lindsay Hassett. Uh, now I, I grew up listening to those guys and, and I would play backyard cricket with those voices in my mind or, or hallway cricket against myself with those voices in my mind. Smithy. I mean, I, I did too a little bit. Uh, I, Arlott, Johnson, uh, McGilvray were early influences on me. And yet the commentaries that we now produce are sort of perforce very different from those, aren't they? I mean, I'm not sure you could get away with John Arlott being entirely silent for 45 seconds after Don Bradman gets out. We can't do that. What, what's changed that, that's changed our style, do you think? I think television has driven a lot of the change uh, because... Uh, people d- have demanded a lot more from from that style of, of commentary. Uh, it's a it's it's just not um, it's it's just not a, an informative side of things. It's certainly a, an entertainment side of things as well. And I think finding the balance between those two things has become critically important. And, and also, of course, in, in radio, a gap these days of forty five seconds in radio, it, most people think you've gone off the air. Mm. Or, or they they search around to, you know, they search around to change the channel because the cricket's gone all of a sudden. Let's listen to some music or something. So that's almost uh, an unwritten rule in radio now. Don't leave a gap, and certainly don't leave a gap where you might hear polite applause for a hundred or something in the background. You've got to talk over that stuff. Uh, and television is slightly more liberal in that regard because you let the picture tell the story uh, to a certain degree, but 
but not for long. For instance, Benno's, Richie Benno's style of commentary was uh, to let the pictures tell the story with as few words as possible, particularly over the big moments. Uh, other people, Bill Laurie from the same commentary box, could never let that happen. He'd get out of his seat, and and everyone is different in their own regard. But I think there's, there's scope for both. As I said, it's just just finding the balance. But these days, it's it's about entertainment because the game has changed towards entertainment as well. You, you look at T20 cricket. T20 cricket with old style commentary just it wouldn't work. It might sound a bit reductive jumping to the 2015 World Cup semi-final now because we're kind of going back from, we're jumping around a bit, but in terms of like huge, I guess, global moments, that, that's one that really stands out for me where you kind of, it was a, not just a, a big moment for you, but New Zealand cricket making the World Cup final for the first time. Such dramatic circumstances, the way it played out in that kind of madcap semi-final. What are your uh, distinctive memories of, of that night, kind of coming behind the microphone, knowing that you were going to, drive at home and, and, and either it would be a, a wonderful moment for New Zealand sport or it would probably be devastation if they didn't get over the line. I remember that night quite vividly for a number of reasons. I've been to Eden Park a zillion times as a player myself and as a commentator, both cricket and rugby. So I'd seen some pretty big occasions. I mean, four years earlier, we'd, we'd won the Rugby World Cup. I was on the sideline commentating that and beaten France by one point. So there's a lot of drama involved in that. I've seen a lot of cricketing good times at Eden Park and a lot of a lot of down times as well when we haven't quite jumped that fence, that last fence. We've fallen at the last one. Uh, so that that night was one of belief. I, I kind of felt that um, McCullum had the Midas touch about him. And, and he was going through a, a stage in his career as captain where things were happening for him. And I just thought, for, uh, in a weird sort of a way, this might be our time. Uh, so I, I entered that last commentary stint with optimism, but not to the point that I wanted to have to have parochialism. I had, you know, I had, I had Graham Smith alongside me, who was relatively new to the commentary side, but a very famous name in, in world sport, of course. And uh, along the far end, I had uh, Michael Atherton, so he was the neutral. So there's New Zealand, South Africa, and a, a neutral Englishman. Um, and, and it was quite interesting as that built up, because whilst we're in an enclosed commentary box. The atmosphere at the ground was was just so evident to everybody. It's quite an enclosed ground, and you commentate from in the crowd, uh, and so that it was easy to get up for it. Uh, and as the drama unfolded throughout the night, you could kind of tell it was just going to go down to the wire. And I, I didn't enter that last commentary stint thinking it was going to be as dramatic as it was. So you, you just sort of go with the flow, and then entering the last over with uh, you know with the numbers that were. Were, uh, were in front of New Zealand. Of course, you've got the greatest bowler, one of the greats of the time, Dale Stain. So you're going to back him uh, against you know two guys who terrific players but hadn't done it before. And here we go. Good old New Zealand are going to fall at the last hurdle again. So that was always, uh, I think, in the back of my mind as well. So I had that balance. Uh, and then the atmosphere out the window and, the, and then the atmosphere of the building. Because whilst you're not even if you're in a commentary situation, but you're not working, you're still floating around. Mm. You know, so you, there was some high-powered stuff over my right shoulder taking all this in as well. So it was it was just an amazing thing. And then, of course, um, when Elliot hit the six, when Grant Elliot hit the six, it was quite similar to how uh, New Zealand beat in Australia where Kane Williamson earlier in the tournament, it hit a six almost into the same area of the grandstand. So I'd already called that, uh, so I, I suppose I was ready for it. Uh, and when it happened, uh, I, I can't really recall what I said, 
but I was oh, we were out of their seats we were out of our seats like everyone else Graham Smith was sunken he was just he was a broken man because he was passionate about South Africa and they'd never gone past a semi-final either so we were always going to have one new finalist uh, and it was our turn so I, I got up and, and uh, but the pictures are th- the most amazing thing that I can remember from that the camera work the, the the people that they got the both sides of the drama the winners and the losers um, the success and the failure you know the tears of happiness and the uh, tears of, of despair all in the same screen that you're trying to commentate you know Grant Elliott the image of Grant Elliott picking up Dale Stane or trying to pick him up off the pitch that is sport at its highest highest dramatic level that you can ever have the privilege to describe so it's a case of finding the words and sometimes you don't need to say anything sometimes in that situation you say folks just take this in this is what sport's about and, and you know for 15 to 20 seconds you just a cameraman just goes around the groups and just sums it all up and it was beautifully done it was really beautifully done on, on that evening so I learned a lot from that uh, I didn't prepare for it I had no idea how that game was going to finish up I didn't have any phrases that I'd written down in a textbook just in case it happened. I just went with it, and you know, it was cool. It was cool, and it was so different. You know, that last over at Eden Park that night compared to the first over of the grand final where Brendan McCullum got knocked over. You could, by Mitchell State, you could not find a different, a higher margin or a wider margin between um, success and failure or, or the joy and the despair if you're a parochial commentator. So uh, it was amazing. It was, it was truly amazing. 2015, great. Can I ask you about mm. that, that parochialism? Because we, we all have it. Mm. You know, you know <laughs> Colo and I are mostly on radio, you, you on TV. Uh, the expectations of the listeners are that when I'm on TMS, I'm sort of, I'm, I go out to bat for England. Yeah. The moment Colo speaks, he goes out to bat for Australia. And we know that, you know, in that World Cup final or in that World Cup semi-final, you are there feeling everything for New Zealand and yet at the same time we're asked to do uh, a different kind of job aren't we? most of the time you know for 95% of our commentary time we are supposed to be objective and yet in the big moments that's the moment when I, I don't quite know what's happening to us at that stage you know are we are we there to represent our people or whoever they may be, or, are, or or what are we doing? How do we how do we work out what to do in that moment? I think you've got to be conscious of who your audience is. Now, in a World Cup television situation, you're generally working for the host broadcaster, which is the world, and there's a lot of neutral people um, in most broadcasts when you're working for the world feed. If I was working for strictly a New Zealand audience, I think I'd be a different commentator. I, I think my true colours would come through a bit more, but I tried, uh, I've been doing this for a long time now, I've been doing this since uh, 1993, so what's that, 27, 28 years almost, and, and I, I've learned throughout that time to become a cricket commentator from New Zealand, not a New Zealand cricket commentator. Okay, so there, there's a, for me there's a fine line there that you don't cross. Uh, and so whilst... Look, I'd love New Zealand to win every time. And, and you know, I, I feel it a wee bit when they don't. But I think my greatest responsibility is, is to the, the cricket fan who, who wants to know about the feelings within the game. And they will expect from time to time, the most knowledgeable fans from time to time will, will expect that 
your joy will come through when, when your team wins. But And they'll also understand when you're down in the dumps a wee bit, but you can't, I don't think you can let that be a feature of your commentary. If it completely disappeared, then you'd have to look in the mirror and ask yourself what kind of person you were. But I, I think at the end of the day, look, um, you know, I, I, I felt that I just have to do the job that I'm asked to do. And, and that basically is to inform, find that balance between informing and entertaining again and again and again. And, and that means, that means I, I can't be Ian Smith from New Zealand, heart and soul, I have to be Ian Smith, cricket broadcaster, with that background. I have a. I think we were. Uh, I was doing the World Cup semi final and final as well. The at Manchester then Lords mm. as was Dan uh, and the Guptal run out of MS Dhoni was one of those ones where um, you could go either way. You could kind of back yourself and go full throttle, mm. or you could kind of um, withdraw from it. And likewise, to an extent, the, the final moment of the World Cup um, at Lords, you, mm. you could if you wanted to. But um, I just wanted to touch on, I guess, instinct and cricket instinct and kind of knowing and backing yourself yeah. to make the call and almost. I don't know, would I be right in describing it like asking for forgiveness, not permission in that moment? You, you go big because you kind of intuit that you know what it is because you've been in and around cricket for the majority of your life and, and you just kind of got to trust that instinct? Yeah, yeah I, I think one of, one of the advantages you've got, very good question, one of the advantages you've got is that uh, you've played and you've played in intense situations and you've played in, in situations where it goes for you and it goes against you. But... What I look for in, in commentary and television, and, and sometimes it's a bit of a no-no, I, I sort of, a, I'm an 80-20, maybe a 90, 80-20 lead commentator. There's different roles, of course, if you're calling or if you're analysing. I, I think as a lead commentator, I'm about 80-20, and what I say by that is I, I'm 80% monitor on what you can see at home, I'm 20% out the window, uh, so I'm looking, for, I'm looking for signs out the window that I can preempt. So in a non-tense situation, for instance, like bowling changes, you can see someone down at third man warming up. You can see a captain out of the corner of your eye direct someone back. So you can preempt things that the, the director can then follow up with a shot or a picture shot. So that's, that's the advantage of television. So I'm 80-20. In those tense situations, I stay as 80-20, and therefore I'm able to see players' reactions, and they're the reactions that I had when I was a player. So I, can, I, I think I can sense joy, I can sense tenseness, and I can sense closeness of situations as much looking out the window as I can on TV without ignoring it because the cardinal rule is you can't talk about something at home at, that people at home can't see. It's the most frustrating, god-awful thing to do is to talk about something you know is happening but they can't see happening, particularly on television. Radio, you've got to do that. You've got to paint the picture for them. Our picture is right in front of us and you can't ignore it. So that is the thing. Now, in, in that run-out situation at Manchester... Um, Here's a guy, Martin Guptill, who had had a miserable tournament, to be fair. It hadn't worked out well for him. Nothing had gone his way. He couldn't buy a run. But you realise, you, you figured at some point that he was a, he's a brilliant fieldsman. If there was going to be a moment, uh, he'd get into the game somehow. And, and I think that was in the back of my mind as well, that if, if it's Guptill, you're a chance. And I think once it went to Guptill, I think I got up a little bit higher thinking that I also got up higher because it's MS Dhoni and MS Dhoni is the greatest closer in the game and without MS Dhoni um, then India are going to battle uh, in those tense situations 
so I, I kind of something in the back of my head said this could be the biggest moment in this match going forward this could be the biggest moment in this match and so you go you, that's when you take your pump that's when you, you, you have you have your go at it and you think well okay I'm going to back myself to give this one everything and what happened happened the director it happened look either way I think I'd have stayed up because if it hadn't have been out then New Zealand might have just missed their moment you know so um, and if it hits uh, India have missed their moment or New Zealand have got their moment so you just you just absolutely ride with it you learn to ride with it uh, and, and that was to me that moment there was uh, to me it was a, as big as as the Guptill getting run out in the final because without that moment that Guptill produced New Zealand wouldn't have been there so you know it's it's, it's You've got to find, you've got to find a way, you know, just to be there for that, that particular moment. And then, of course, you've got the guy sitting next to you, and that was Sarev Ganguly, uh, who I had never really worked with before. Um, incredibly knowledgeable man, but different, entirely different style of commentary to me. And so you, you, you go back to Sarev, who has a more balanced way of thinking about it. Of course, and he's an Indian um, captain, Indian through and through. And he's got the disappointment side of it where Donny's missed by that much. So it was, it was cool. It was, it was a cool moment. And as it turned out, it was, it was the critical moment in the game. In that situation, that is the critical moment. And you can see it's a critical moment. In the World Cup final, that, was, that tested everybody. I mean, I know Colo was calling the last couple of overs for SCN. I was on the same commentary. I'd had some what I thought were big moments earlier on in the game, and then there was big moment after big moment. You know, there was Trent Bolt mm. stepping on the boundary. There was there was Nisham Six in the super over. I mean, you you didn't even really know, did you, when when you were covering that game? It's the craziest game. What was the big moment? When to go big? Uh, how did you kind of manage that process? Because there was so. Do you know what I mean? I mean, there were there were big moments for the last four overs of playing yeah. that game that was so huge they could have decided the game each one of them look that's an interesting scenario that because as you, as you guys know there are commentary rosters uh, and there are fairly strict regimes in terms of timing of, of commentary so you know we didn't know at the start of the day what the roster was going to be there's some fairly high powered big names involved in our commentary roster as you can understand I mean everyone wants to do the World Cup final so there was a demand for it and then they could only make so many choices. So you arrive at the, the ground, you look at the commentary roster and you see yourself doing the last half hour or the last seven overs. And you, at no stage at that, do you think that you're going to be calling that kind of moment. You, you know that you're going to be calling probably the summing up side of things. In other words, the success and the failure of somebody uh, probably leading into the presentation. So there's going to be, you know, there's certain disciplines that you have to prepare for in that scenario, but there's no way you can prepare for that. You're like the player in that regard. You, no, none of those players hopped off the bus at, at Lords that morning thinking that that was going to go to that point uh, in the World Cup final was going to go that way. Uh, so, oh, look, I, I hopped in with uh, half an hour to go with uh, Nasser Hussain and, and Ian Bishop. So you're an Englishman, a New Zealander, and, of course, uh, Mr Perfect, you know, the, the guy with all the balance, Bish, who's just a, wonder, a wonderfully great man to work with and, and so... Just puts uh, just puts a balance on most things. Uh, it was just a, it was it was a, a heck of a combination. But we, we, we didn't we didn't know. And then 
you know, we got to that bizarre situation um, where the ball hit Stokes's bat and ran up the hill. I mean, I, I'd, how many years have I played international cricket in tight situations where I'd never seen that happen before? I've seen it come off pe- the body. I've seen it deflect off anything, but I've never seen it. And I watched that ball go up the hill at Lords, and it seemed to go faster. I mean, gravity <laughs> says it should slow down, <laughs> but it didn't slow down. Colin de Gronham, I think, was chasing it. He was making no ground on this damn thing. So I was like, at that moment, I thought, oh, it's not going to be New Zealand's time, but that was just me thinking it, not saying it. Uh, and then uh, you've still got the drama of, of trying to... Well, I said something like along the lines of, I don't believe what I've just seen because I hadn't seen it before. And that's a nation of all. So then we get to those two wonderful runouts, I think, off the last couple of balls. One of them Trent Bolt picked off on the half volley at the bowler's end, which one of the most beautiful pieces of work under pressure that almost got ignored. It was because of the tenseness of the situation. Some of the skills got so overlooked in that game. And, you know, in the highest moments of pressure, the guys that delivered were, were quite staggering. So we get to that situation where we've got a super over, and I'll, I'll be perfectly honest, I, I did not know all the rules of the super over. So when they came up as a graphic on the screen, and I was reading them to the world, I was actually reading them for the first time. I hadn't, and, and you know, it's probably a commentary no-no not to know the full extent of them, but I had no idea that the side that was on the field at the end would be the side fielding first in the super over. I was waiting for the captains to toss and all. I had no idea about that. Look, I, we had no idea of who was going to come out and bat for either side because that was those decisions were made behind closed doors. And the, the footage that the world feed was able to get of the long room, of the steps at Lords, of the of the visitors' door and the and the home team's door added to all that drama because they were shots that had never been seen before. That's the holy of holy. That that was a, a heck of an achievement to get those. And so when the door opened and whoever was walking out walked out, that added because you could build that into half the drama. Who were the two blokes? Who were the guys that were going to be charged with the responsibility? And that's a talking point while this is all unfolding. And that's 10 minutes or so. Uh, of drama that you're trying to you've just got over the fact you're getting there and now you've got to start again that last commentary stint I think instead of half an hour was closer to about an hour and ten minutes Mm, mm. um, once it finished at at the 30 minute mark when the game was tied initially uh, we all turned around to the producer at the back and said right who, who, who got coming in you know for the to do this part of it and they said no you're it you guys have done a lot um so we, we sort of had to stay in, in that sort of um, in that zone. We had to sort of get a balance here because we've gone back to square one again. It's 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 not quite all tied up because of course you've got that situation where England had a slight advantage because they'd hit more boundaries, and, and you're trying to work yourself through that scenario. They'd hit more fours throughout the day, therefore they New Zealand had to win by one more run. You, you kind of say to yourself. Did Owen Morgan and Kane Williamson on the morning of the match stand up in front of the teams and say, fellas, this is the World Cup final. I want you to go out and enjoy the greatest moment of your life. But remember when you're batting, make sure you hit lots of fours just in case the super over ends in a tie. I mean, imagine that. So that's how bizarre that scenario was. And of course, we didn't, you know, we didn't know. So then you, you settle down, you try and sit down, you might have a drink of water or something, and away we go again. But the tension, it really, the tension hadn't 
Uh, I don't think it had subsided. In fact, I think whilst there was that period of inactivity where people were getting ready to do what they were going to do, I think it grew. Uh, and therefore, there wasn't a lot of time to relax. When there wasn't a lot of downtime while you looked at all those scenarios. Did you actually want to do it? I mean, I was I was on the same commentary as Colo, and I, I actually lost the ability to think towards the end of that game. Uh, I mean, I was actually genuinely looking around the Lord's press box looking for a defibrillator. <laughs> and uh, when Colo said, look, I, I'm on, I'll just keep going. That there's a part of my professionalism was I want to be on commentary for the World Cup final for the end. There was a far greater part of me which was, oh, thank God, I just need to better watch this. I, the last thing I want is a microphone in my face. I just need to better watch this. Were you happy to be left on? I mean, did you did you actually want to do that? Because I'd, I'd lost my mind. I think I was happy uh, to be left on uh, because I was in the zone, I was in the mood. You know, I mean, Lords is a wonderful place to watch cricket, and even if you're not working, you get you sit in one of those rooms upstairs and look straight down the ground at the best view in cricket, um, I believe, anyway. So, I mean, it's it's not a bad off-course substitute uh, to be not calling it, but to be able to sit in that seat and watch it. Uh, but I, I was quite happy and uh, quite relieved that we could carry on uh, the scenario. Uh, neither of the other two guys um, desperately wanted to get out. Uh, I think um, we we we'd sort of formed in a, in a sh- very short space of time, quite a nice little unit, and we sort of had most bases covered. I, you know, I'd, I'd sort of call the action, and NASA would have very quick analysis from both sides. Of course, there's a passionate guy, NASA Hussain. I mean, this is a guy that's captain England through its highs and its lows, trying to win the Ashes, trying to win World Cups, playing in so many. There's a guy who's who's very, very passionate about England cricket in that scenario, trying to hold his level. And then you've got the neutral guy, Ian Bishop, who's had highs and lows of the great West Indian side. They're not going through the best patch at the moment, but he actually called the T20 World Cup final when the West Indies got up and won. And, you know, he'd, he'd exactly been in that scenario that I was doing. So he had that, but he could provide the balance of someone sitting just back a wee bit and then coming forward when it was asked. So I, I kind of, I kind of, uh, I was very happy to stay on because I, I think I felt that I was really part of it. I, I'd become part of it and I wanted to see and talk about where it was going. So let's jump to the last ball uh, because this piece of commentary from the last ball of the World Cup final, I mean, I think it's reasonable to conclude it's going to go down as the most famous piece of cricket commentary of all time or close to it. You know, it's irrefutable already. Just before the ball's bowled, I mean, I, I know what it was like from my perspective on a much smaller scale doing radio, but from your perspective, last ball of the World Cup final, Joffrey Archer's racing in. Try and give us a sense of how you're feeling in that moment, uh, knowing that and knowing the stakes at play. I mean, of course, you know cricket inside out. You knew what the stakes were. You knew it was the end of a super over, the end of the 102nd over of the day, the craziest World Cup final ever played, all the rest of it. Try and give us a feel of just that moment when Joffre's at the top of his mark. Well, in a, in a nutshell, uh, we'd been there for seven weeks. Um, you know, it's a long time, a cricket World Cup. Uh, if, if you start, and, start at the beginning and, and go through to the end and... We'd been there a long, long time, so how twice in one afternoon, really, how could 48 games of cricket over seven weeks or so 
come down to one ball because in, in normal time it was the same scenario. Um, so here we have half an hour later the same scenario again. So there's, there's that in, in, in your mind. You've got this, this, this young kid who England fast-tracked through to get him to play in the tournament who all of a sudden has got the weight of England on his shoulders because England have never won the World Cup. He's at home at headquarters, which he's probably hardly ever played at, to be fair, let alone in a situation like that. So that's in the back of your mind. So you've got this kid, and at the other end, all of a sudden, you've got Martin Guptill, whose tournament had been pretty average, pretty miserable. But here in this one moment, this one moment, if he hit a four or he found two runs for New Zealand, he's a national hero forever, forever, like Grant Elliott. He's a... He's a uh, a legend almost and a, f- a story of folklore he's like that or if he misses out it's not good you know it's not good so there's those all those things I know Martin Guptill quite well he's, I, I class Martin Guptill as quite a good friend so I, I could feel for him but I uh, and there's still this overriding thing is that it's, it's, it's the World Cup final and, and passion and patriotism has to has to take a back seat. So I, I remember all those things. I can still see that moment now. Uh, I can still see Owen Morgan having a, a quiet little word to Archer, just a, a little field change here and there. Then you've got the speculation: What's he going to bowl? Is he going to bowl a bouncer? Is he going to is he going to bowl a Yorker? Is he going to go wide to try and shut down one side of the field? What is his strategy? What's this kid thinking? So you've got all these things going through your mind as well, and you're trying to find one or two sentences to sum it all up. That um, That is it. And then all of a sudden, thank God, it starts. The action starts. And so you say, I'm very conscious in that scenario. And I think if, if, if you listen back, I'm, I'm almost every ball saying what the scenario is. So two-to-tie, one-to-one scenario type situation. Because you kind of figure that in a World Cup final, you've still got to educate. You're probably dragging in a lot of viewers that haven't watched or listened to cricket like that before. So there's that educational process of saying you've got to keep reminding people that if the scores are tied, England win. So New Zealand, you've got to keep telling them that. You've got to keep saying every ball, you've got to say what the scenario is. Um, So you make it painfully obvious what they're about to see what has to happen for either side. So I think you've got that responsibility as well. So I was trying to do that. Uh, And then I basically called it out the window almost because I knew the cameras would have it covered. So I could see Guptill turning. Um, You can only have one camera shot on television at a time. You can cut to plenty in a small piece of time, but you can only have one shot on at at the moment. So... I knew that they would be following the ball. I was looking at Guptill turning. All these things, This is, you get back to this 80-20 situation where you're looking there and you're looking there. Uh, and I, I just, I was standing uh, and I just, I could see it unfolding either way. I mean, could Jason Roy fumble? Uh, he'd fumbled not long before in normal time. Th- this is a kid, you know, who's, who, who's got the responsibility at the higher part of Lords, not easy running around on that slope. Uh, and then finding a throw 
somehow that was is close enough for Butler to do what he had to do. Now, that throw could have gone anywhere. In fact, if it had been much wider of Butler, I think Gupta would have got home. That's how close the margin was. And I think at that time when um, he broke the bales, my memory was looking around at England reactions. The guys that were close, the guys that were square on, Butler himself. And at that moment, I think I realised by England's reactions that England had won. Not the decision, but that England had won. Uh, and that goes back to the part of of playing the game and, and looking at players, reactions, reactions, their facials, faces. And I think I knew at that moment that was short by looking at England's reactions. So that's why... I don't know where it came from. I don't know where the barrister margins came from. I had nothing written down. I had no, I had no preparation for that. Who knows? How can you prepare for a game of cricket like that? I, I had no preparation. I had nothing, no line ever. Um, I often thought, what would I have said if New Zealand? What what would I have said? And you know, afterwards, it's easy to find a line. Something like New Zealand, little old New Zealand, stand on top of the cricketing world. And let me tell you the the view's pretty damn good or something like that. But that's a line that will never be used because they miss. So you you find, you just find uh, something within yourself and you trust that you can. And, and I guess it comes from 20 odd years of, of doing it. I'm not sure you could walk in the seat and do it straight away, but some people might be gifted enough to do that. But mine, I think I found that through all that time of doing it. And I, I think Williamson hitting the six, Elliot hitting the six, the disappointment of Melbourne, calling all the action I have over the years, Brendan McCullum's 300, the only one that New Zealand had ever done. I, I, I just think they all came together at that right time and helped me find the right phrase at the right time. That, And, and then, of course, uh, it, was, it was quite evident that there was, it was going to be uh, ecstasy and agony, and the camera guys did a wonderful job, and the producers, directors, Gav Scavell, did a great job of finding those moments. And you, you don't have to say a lot over those. You don't have to say a heck of a lot because tears and joy and laughter and, 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 and tears of despair sort of sum themselves up. Nasser said to me last week that some England players have, have thanked you for, for the call. Johnny Bairstow, he mentioned in particular. What's that like? Knowing that, and I'm, and I'm not sort of suggesting, I know you said at the start you don't go back and listen to your work that often, so sort of acknowledging that caveat, but what's it like knowing and realising that something that you've been intimately involved in, uh, you know, narrating, as I say, the sort of the most well-known, what will go down as the most well-known World Cup final ever, and, and knowing how important those words are to those who've consumed it, but also those who've played in the game. I think it's some of the best gratification you can have is, is if the, the actors, or in this case the players, can come to you afterwards and say thanks for your reflection. Um, yeah, Johnny Bairstow's been good. Um, Paul Collingwood, um, who's of course involved with the England side. Joe Root, actually, I can tell you a story. I interviewed Joe Root on the morning of the World Cup final. I interviewed one from each side. That was my, my build-up role, and I interviewed Ross Taylor and Joe Root. And Joe Root came down uh, the steps at Lords, and I was a bit nervous about inter- interviewing Joe Root. He's a terrific young kid, but I, I didn't know him very well. And he said, before we start, I'd just like to say I watched the uh, coverage of the Indian game, the last few moments of the Indian game. I thought you were fantastic. I thought you nailed it. 
I said, well, let's hope, you know, we don't have to get so tense in this one. That'll be good, wouldn't it? <laughs> <laughs> and he said, yeah. He said, if it, uh, I think he said something like, yeah, I hope we're on the right side of it or something like that. So it was, it was quite ironical, you know, that, that he would say that. But I have had, um, I had a lot of messages afterwards and, and from people that, um, you know, you've worked with or, you know, you've commentated on. And that... Those reflections, uh, and that, they probably mean uh, uh, as much to you as anyone else, particularly those people involved in the game. Even the New Zealand guys, um, a lot of New Zealand guys have, have come to me, Williamson and Taylor and Southie and co and, and Bolt and said that was terrific, you know, and, and you know, they, they came out of it without their name on the trophy, but they came out of it um, smelling of roses because um, of the way they handled the situation and how how it unfolded and, and how they took it on the chin basically so they they were they were pretty cool uh, but that you're right I mean uh, they're the ones and they're not ones you read about or they're not ones that um, you, you, there's no quotes in the paper about that sort of thing they, they come from the heart of the people that are involved so that was cool and, and still you know I, I get the odd um, I get the odd message and what we're talking about July last year now so what uh, uh, coming up about eight months ago, nine months ago. So it's still obviously quite fresh in a lot of people's minds. And I, I, I hope to keep continuing commentating cricket, but I, I don't think I'll ever find another moment like that. And I'm, I'm not sure you guys will either, that that will get to... I hope we do. I, I sincerely hope we do. Um, but I'm not sure. I'm not sure we're going to find uh, an 80 or 90 minutes like that again. There's something sort of unique about sports commentary it's not just cricket mm. but there's something specific about cricket because I guess the length of the game and when it builds up to those kind of moments is, is it is this a matter of just being in a space like sort of being part of what goes on around you because you know a lot of people will look back I, I listened back to so much commentary as a kid I, I heard so many times Arlett say something and Johnson say something and Richie Benno in the confectionery mm. store and out again and wondering where it came from it doesn't really doesn't really come from anywhere does it except except the being in the moment is it is it is that it is that basically the skill just to be yourself yeah I, I think you can't be anyone else um, if if being yourself isn't good enough uh, you won't have the job you know, they'll give it to somebody else. So you've, you've got to trust that being yourself um, is is good enough. Uh, you've got to trust that um, you'll you'll ebb and flow as the game ebbs and flows. You see, I I, I don't over prepare. Um, if I head into a game of cricket tomorrow, I don't do any statistical preparation because you've got a stats man there. You might realise that it's some guy's 100th game or he's knocking on the door of breaking a milestone, a significant one, and you'll know that in the back of your mind that um, that's very, it, it's, it's very important to them and you don't want to miss it from their point of view or their family or whatever, but it can't dominate your thoughts because you'll keep leading towards it, you'll keep driving towards it, uh, and, and so it's got to be sitting there. I don't, I don't over-prepare. I, I actually... I don't know whether it's because I was a wicketkeeper and you're involved in every ball. You get used to switching on and off very quickly um, as, as to what, is, what has happened and what is about to happen. And the, the, the what is about to happen, um, I, I find the, the biggest joy in commentary. 
I, I, I really like taking a punt on what I think's about to happen. I, I really like saying, if you look at a field set out the window or whatever, and you say, oh, he's going to come down the wicket and try and hit him over mid-wicket. There's nothing better in commentary to see that happen, the ball after you've done it. If he doesn't do it, at the very worst, you can say, well, he had me fold and move on, you know. He, he got me, you know. He, I think he's going to go short here. I think he's got, going to bowl him a bounce three bowls and a terrific Yorker. Well, he fooled me just like he fooled him, sort of, you know, those scenarios. So you, you, you can't, I don't know, I, I just, I've never, when I stopped playing cricket, I fell out of love with playing cricket. I, I fell out of love with playing cricket. But I never fell out of love with cricket. And, and I think that that has helped me. I, I've always loved cricket. There are aspects of, of cricket that I don't enjoy commentating about as much as others, but I, um, I think cricket um, is, is in me. I'm lucky to have cricket in me, and I've been lucky enough to get the cricket that's in me out to the people at, at the right time. You know, if you, if you get my drift, I, um, I've worked with some great people. I'll, I'll tell you how I, I, the first time I ever got to call a big moment. New Zealand were about to beat Lord, uh, England at Lords for the first time ever. Uh, and I was working for Channel 4 with Richie Benno, who I don't idolise too many people, but I can clearly say I, I absolutely idolised Richie Benno. Hung on every word, used to sit in the back of the commentary box when Benno was on, and basically listen or watch how I thought the master did the job. And I was like a very, very young apprentice when I started working with him. And on this particular afternoon, New Zealand had won at Lords, uh, was about to win at Lords, and it was a huge amount of history for a New Zealand cricket team. So it was obviously going to be a, a, a critical moment of commentary. And Ben, I set it up uh, along the lines of something like New Zealand are about to create history. It's going to be a wonderful moment for them, four to win. And he put the microphone down and got up and walked away. And there was only two of us there. And the producer said to him, Rich, where are you going? Where are you going, Rich? It's a big moment. He said, yeah, it is. It's his moment too. Let him have it. So, um, you know, that, that's a story. And all of a sudden, it's, I suppose you'd say, well, you've been thrown in the deep end, but you've, bro- you've been thrown one of the biggest compliments of all time, that your voice is going to call that moment and a great man like Richie Benno has deemed it the right time for you to do it. And I think I grew up 10 years in commentary in 20 seconds there, that the great man who I idolised so much had given me that opportunity to be part of my cricket teams and my, my country's cricketing history. That, I, I reflect on that still today, on, on how lucky I was and how classy he was. These days, the way that the global ICC tournaments have flowed, it, it feels as though it's kind of you, Ian Bishop and Nash and Atherton seem to be the people that get drawn into the biggest moments when, you know, trophies are there to be won and, and so forth. But you mentioned Ian Bishop before um, having so magnificently completed the, the job at, at the 2016 World T20. Carlos Brathwaite, remember the name and, and so mm. forth. And Nasser Hussain, your right-hand man on World Cup final day who did such an unbelievable job of capturing the Ben Stokes Headingley miracle um, what was it 42 days after the World Cup final or something ridiculous mm-hmm. um, just a reflection on, on those guys that you're sort of 
the similar vintage too in terms of commentary. Um, you're in, the, I guess, the peak of your powers at the moment. You're in these global tournament teams and it feels like we're all the better for it. That you know, You're kind of going coming through as a group sort of and, and it, it could be any of you doing it at any given moment. Yeah, it's interesting that because what you've got there and you're mentioning names that do a lot of big events and they also call a lot of cricket which their teams aren't involved in. Uh, and so therefore you're, you're talking about neutral commentary um, uh, amongst a lot of guys and I think that's quite important that, that you do that. I, I don't think we should ever lose sight of parochialism to the extent where you, people at home expect you to be happy if your team wins but you've got you've to find the level and you've got to make sure that it's short and sharp get your point across and then get back on the reality of, of the balance of, of the whole show so and it is a show. Uh, at the end of the day, it, it is a, it's a broadcast of an event, and you've got to re- reflect that. So, yeah, I mean, there is a nucleus of guys that um, the ICC um, approve of to do these things at, at any one time. That'll change with age and and uh, other people retiring and wanting to get into the game. And, and a lot of common, a lot of players will tell you. I'll never be a commentator. You know, I'll never, I'll never reduce myself to being a commentator. Surprising how many of those guys end up being commentators. I promise you. How many, you know, and you'll find that as well. The, the analysts you work with in radio as well. You would have thought a lot of those grumpy old buggers that you know you thought, oh, I'll never. It's the last thing I'll do after a life playing cricket. The last thing I want to do is go up and talk about it. Well, they're the first guys knocking down the door, aren't they? To be fair, uh, so you, you get those, you get those guys, and. and and it changes. One of the joys of commentary, um, apart from the fact that you do work with an experienced group of people at times, and, and the other thing for me is, is working with new people, um, working with guys. Uh, I'm old enough to have commentated, I think, pretty much all the careers of these new guys coming in. Mm. So if I look at a guy like uh, Michael Clark or someone who comes into the commentary box or you know, a Ricky Ponting or someone like that, I actually commentated their whole careers. Mm. I've commentated the whole career of every New Zealand player for the last 23 years. I mean, so I, I sort of, and to watch them unfold and some have come into the commentary box and even, and then all of a sudden become a workmate rather than an analyst of what they do to become a workmate. Uh, it's been cool. I mean, Brendan McCullum of late, I've called so many wonderful moments of Brendan McCullum's cricket career. And now he's a colleague. Um, so that, that's cool, and, and I look forward to that. And, and, you know, commentary has to evolve. The game evolves, and commentary has to evolve with it. I mean, you know, how would John Arlott have called T20 cricket? Um, it would have been interesting, wouldn't it? And John and, and those guys, how would they have been able to reflect T20 cricket? I, I don't know if they could have, but that's one of the skills. Um, if you want to broadcast all the forms of cricket, and they're so diverse... I mean, you can't get further away from the fifth afternoon of a test match going nowhere to a T20 game. There's so much, there's a void so wide, you you just can't fill it. So uh, I think they're the joys. They're the joys of it, meeting and and commentating with new guys. Some can do it, some can't. You find out in in those scenarios. I I just want to ask about neutrality. Uh, I, I think that my objectively best commentaries are games when I don't have skin in the game mm. if you know what I mean yeah. uh, so I did a lot of World Cup games for TMS in, in which England were not playing and I had a strange objectivity to it that made me 
I, I don't know. I felt kind of more comfortable in those games. It, it, is that is that is that fair? Is that is that something that do, do you notice that at all? I think I have to work harder at those games. I'll tell you why. Because I don't. If, I, if New Zealand are playing, I pretty much know half the actors like the back of my hand. I, I know I've watched their careers unfold. I've known how they've handled situations, um, and, and so therefore half the equation. I think I'm pretty well sorted. New Zealand against um, Bangladesh, New Zealand um, against Afghanistan. Uh, it, I find I find Afghanistan against uh, say Afghanistan against Bangladesh is an intriguing game for me to commentate. I find that very very challenging. One, I've hardly seen any of them play. Two, when I turn up on the morning of the match, I don't know what they look like. Um, you know, thank God for numbers and names on the back of shirts these days. And so there's that. I, I, I've heard about some time how these guys have played. I've heard they've got a reputation. I've heard about that innings he played the other day. I never saw it. So I'm going a lot of that stuff is on hearsay. Whilst I find that um, a little bit more rela- relaxing because you don't, um, as you say, have a skin in the game, you've still got a responsibility and that is, and that is to know that whoever takes that, who's under that catch, you know who it is. And so there's a demand there, uh, and there's a, an extra challenge there in those particular games that you don't have for Australia versus England or Australia versus New Zealand or etc. Uh, of every player you know by sight, uh, their mannerisms in the field, you can recognise them, and and so you've got an advantage there. So there's an extra challenge there, and it it's cool. It's it's a cool challenge. Uh, and it makes you, um, I think it makes you more aware of the job that you're about to do. Uh, 22 players, uh, you know, it doesn't, doesn't seem much. But when you've got 11 guys out there in the middle and you, you know the batsman theoretically at either end, when the ball goes to somebody and someone's involved in a run out and you don't know who that guy is, wow. <laughs> and that's going down in history uh, as a highlight for their particular nation or whatever. There's a challenge. There's a responsibility and there's a challenge. I recall Benno, um, you know, his presence like, I can, I'll tell you a couple of quick ones. We, we um, Channel 4 commentary team did a test match at the Oval where New Zealand had beaten England and it finished quite early on the fifth day. And Nicholas, with all his contacts, Mark Nicholas had a contact, said, let's go for lunch at the Ivy. Now, if you've tried to get into the Ivy, not that easy, especially with an hour or so's notice. Um, and so we didn't miss that. We arrived. And we arrived in two cabs and we got to the Ivy, got in, sat down, and Benno was in the second cab. The amazing thing was, Nicholas said, watch this, when the door opened, Benno walked in, the room went silent. Now, um, Lloyd Webber was in there, there were a number of politicians and, and actors, and, and the room absolutely went silent when Benno walked through. It was just absolutely friggin' staggering. That was the, that's what Benno meant to English people as yeah. the Australian cricket captain. I'm from a region of Hawke's Bay, called Hawke's Bay in New Zealand, where I'm sitting here now, big wine-growing area. We went to dinner, uh, four of us went to dinner in Leeds of all places. Benno said, I'll get the wine tonight. And he, he sent this guy, this young kid, he kept coming back, with, and he said, no, no, kid kept coming back, no, no, I told you what I want, no. Kid came back with two bottles of Hawke's Bay Sauvignon Blanc and he put them he got them on the table and he said I just thought you might be feeling a bit homesick that's that's the piano I know
This is the final word with Adam Collins and Jeff Lemon, and thanks to Ian Smith for being on Calling the Shots, and as a result, Jeff, being on our show, the final word. <laughs> he didn't know what he was getting himself into, but, <laughs> but in the end, you can't take it back once we've got our hooks into you. You're ours forever. If you want to be part of our patron community, our family, it, it is enormously appreciated. Uh, Patron.com forward slash the final word. If you're in a position to review or rate uh, what we do on iTunes, maybe listening to Ian Smith, you enjoyed that and want to drop us a, a little five star there. That helps an, an awful lot in terms of spreading the show around. All our old episodes are at final word cricket.com our website which is beautifully curated uh, by the team at Bad Producer Productions Jay Mueller Astrid Edwards and Dave Collins who edits us week to week they do a great job uh, looking after what we do and getting us on the park a couple of times a week and it's all there on finalwearcricket.com and uh, thanks to everyone who's been sending us in messages uh, the patron inbox has been overflowing over the last few weeks and uh, lots of Back and forth, it's kept us relatively cheerful even when things are a, a giant steaming crockpot of shit. Indeed, and last but not least, to Seabus Super and to the Lord's Taverners, thanks for being our partners in what we do as well. This has been the final word, Weekend Edition, with Adam Collins and Jeff Lehman. We'll be back next week. Sorry if I ran out to empty, wrote this so you know what I meant. I had to go about it, write it out.